You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We are three friends who met in business school at Stanford and discovered our common interest in natural climate solutions. And we bring our background spanning conservation, international development, investing, and entrepreneurship to the challenge of navigating this space. We're your hosts. I'm Ida. I'm Kate. And I'm Julia. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Bronson Griscom. Bronson is the Senior Director of Natural Climate Solutions at Conservation International and is one of the world's leading experts on how to sustainably manage, protect, and restore forests and other carbon-storing ecosystems. He's had a long career in natural climate solutions, and among his many excellent works, Bronson authored the 2017 landmark study on the impact potential of natural climate solutions. Previously, Bronson served as the Director of Forest Carbon Science at the Nature Conservancy, And before that, he helped make climate change funding available for forest climate work through the Global Environment Facility. Bronson, welcome to Solving Climate Naturally. We are delighted to have you. Ida, Kate, Julia, thank you so much. It's a true pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Let's begin at the beginning. As we understand it, you've been interested in natural climate solutions for quite a long time, and we'd love to hear a bit about your journey, how you started your career, how you got this interest in the environment, uh, and also what you're working on today at Conservation International. Gosh, well, so I guess if we go all the way back to kind of the you know early days of my career, I went in a graduate program in tropical forest ecology uh, at the Yale School of Forestry. And so I found myself in sort of in remote reaches of, of southwestern Peru in the deep, sort of deep in the Amazon jungle up a, up a river in the rainforest. And so, you know, I I really launched my career. It was doing very obscure research on sort of ecological questions in the the tropical forests. But as time passed, I got just increasingly interested in more applied research questions and and more applied science, which is to say like practically more, more immediately useful kind of research questions. And I, about, gosh, it's about maybe 13 years ago, I took a job at the Nature Conservancy. And and that was actually, I think that was the moment when I could say I was sort of sucked into the carbon vortex. <laughs> and and it was kind of a, a, a bit of luck that the methods that I had used to study forest ecosystems were directly applicable to the broader questions of interaction between forest and climate. And but having said that, I did have a bit of an imposter syndrome at the time because I certainly did not think of myself as a climate scientist. But over time, I got more and more comfortable. And now I left the Nature Conservancy, which is very fond of my colleagues there, and but launched a, a new position at Conservation International, totally focused on this question of natural climate solutions. Great. And so at CI, what are the cutting edge or frontier things that, that you're working on right now? What are the big questions you're trying to answer? Well, so I would say, yeah. So the big question that we've been looking at for a couple of years now, going back to my tenure at, at the Nature Conservancy, was really the kind of trying to understand the set of of solutions, so the, the different ways in which improved land tenure could be a solution to climate change, right? Could deliver 
climate mitigation, which is say either avoiding emissions of carbon pollution um, and other greenhouse gases, or reversing that, right? Which is actually to actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's the sort of the two sort of sides of the coin for natural climate solutions. So we wanted to sort of understand, you know, both what are the set of explicit actions that can be taken and and what's the size of that? What's the size of the prize? Like how big of an opportunity is that? And that the findings, you know, from our from that 2017 paper that I think I mentioned at the beginning was that the answer is it's about 30% of the, not just the conceivable solution, but the actual cost-effective solution, the cost kind of competitive contribution of natural climate solutions is about 30% of the near-term climate solution. And then, and we identified about 20 different very specific types of solution, of natural climate solutions. And most recently, what we're really driving on is, is trying to better understand. So we feel like, let me just say, we, we feel like I mean, not just us, right, but sort of as a community of, of, of scientists and practitioners, we feel like we've been rel- relatively successful in raising awareness about the importance of natural climate solutions. Obviously, there's still quite a bit of ways to go there in just raising awareness, and thanks for the opportunity right here to do that. But there's also, even for those of us, for those government you know, leaders and, and private sector leaders and, and any you know, individual actors who are aware of it, I think there's still a sense of deer in the headlights of like, well, that's great, but what do we do? Like, how do we actually, you know, so yeah, there's these 20 years, but, but how, what do I do you know, like, as an actor? So what we're now trying to do is the next sort of phase of this is to identify, to specifically study what specific groups of actors can do, right? So how and where can specific actors unlock NCS? And, and what is the potential of each of those? Whether it's social justice for indigenous groups, whether it's zero deforestation commitments of big multinational corporations, whether it's diet change, whether it's better forest management by loggers, you name it. Um, we're trying to, trying to really unpackage and clarify what those specific opportunities are. That's fascinating. So I wanted to go back to the first half of your point around this fact that natural climate solutions can enable as much as 30% of the required emissions reduction. So, I mean, that begs the question, do we stand a chance of realizing a meaningful percentage of that impact potential and or how should we think about it? Gosh, let me just say, I think that that's a profound question and, and it's, it's, you know, in a sense, I think it's, it's very much the same question as like, will we succeed in limiting, avoiding catastrophic climate change? I think in it, it is much larger context of, of both fossil fuel emissions and natural climate solutions. Can we dramatically change the game in both our energy and industry systems, as well as our land use and land management? Um, that we're basically... We are at a point now where we have no choice but to revolutionize energy industry and land stewardship all at once, big time, immediately, <laughs> and and completely pivoting in the next couple of decades. But not like not delaying even a couple more years. Like we have to we have to have massively changed things within this very decade. So what I'm saying is I'm just backing up. The answer to me is we have to believe that we can do that because the alternative is, is even more hard to, to imagine, which is catastrophic climate change. And so I think it is a dramatic tectonic shift that that we are looking at here. 
it reminds me of a, of a scene from this is going to be goofy. It reminds me of a scene from from I think The Empire Strikes Back where C-3PO said, you know, you know, Han Solo, do, do you do you realize that there's, you know, one in 5000 chance of like avoiding the asteroids in this asteroid belt? And, you know, Han Solo said, like, never tell me the odds. Like, like, like we can't we, <laughs> we cannot focus on the likelihood of, of, of a tectonic change because it is happening it is happening like the, the tectonic change. And you know what? We, I think we all feel it right now. Like these changes are happening. And the question is, are we just going to just going to let them affect our lives and, and just be the recipient? Or are we going to actually take matters into our own hands and avoid a, a catastrophe? And so either one of those paths is, is a little bit hard to imagine, but one of them will occur. And obviously there's intermediate zones between there but sorry i guess i'm just rephrasing the question saying like we have no choice <laughs> i i love the quote i'm, I'm definitely going to use that i i wanted to get into a bit more to the 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 who and the how and like what are the actions that different actors should be taking in this context and specifically to ask about the role of private sector actors and what should these actors specifically be doing to beat the odds yeah to beat the odds right <laughs> i'll just add let me just sneak in like one other comment on this this sort of profound philosophical question about can we do it is that i think if you look back in history and i'm not a historian but i i at least i at least enough of an observer to suggest that that there are moments in history when things change quickly and decades many decades can go by and and there's sort of a sense of let's just say normalcy and then all of a sudden, big changes happen. Now, we haven't really happen, had in, in my lifetime, but the oldest and wisest folks among us are aware of that, those kind of tectonic shifts and that, that sort of that hit us. I think one of the more exciting things and actually one of those signals of this kind of tectonic shift that I've been talking about has been happening in the past couple of years. And it's in the, in the absence of the kind of movement in the political space, in the public sector, I think one of the things we are beginning to see happening is the private sector is realizing that they, and I mean by the private sector, both finance and like large corporations that need to actually make the change happen on the ground, that that these actors are beginning to realize we can't wait for the public sector to tell us what to do. And we have got to get ahead of this, at least or at least not way behind it. <laughs> you were speaking to sort of the private sector right now. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could say, what can't the private sector do? What do we need from policy? Because you also mentioned in your current work at CI, how you're thinking about what's needed from various actors. So as we have a new administration and there's all this momentum that you're talking about, what should policy be doing to complement what the private sector is doing? So I think the, the public sector, one of the major things, you know, needs to to essentially clarify the rules of the game and and actually conduct the comprehensive kind of reporting on outcomes. This is I'm talking about national reporting so that we really have a race to the top and that we have within the private sector a virtuous competitive cycle to change behavior. You know, we break down natural climate solutions into into three major types of action. Okay. Protect you know, intact and, and existing natural or native ecosystems, restore, 
where where we can restore lands that have been where native ecosystems have been destroyed without threatening food security we need to do that so restoration essentially rewilding if you will and then we need to better manage our working lands right those lands that are producing the food and the fiber and and, and other things that we need so those are the three major categories i think that the the protect category is one that probably the public sector needs to to really play the strongest role in, right? And that's a role in sort of defining where we need to sort of basically the actions that we should not be doing in certain places. The manage category, this category of how do we actually change business models while still producing the, the food and other commodities that we need, to me, that's a space where the private sector is really well positioned, right? We need technology that involves behavior change, better business models, more efficient practices, all those sort of things. So that, and that's a space where the private sector really should be, I think, leaning in. And then the, re- the restoration category, you need both kind of government and private sector to engage in that space. So I like how you characterized these three different types of actions that can be taken with respect to these different ecosystems. And I wanted to go back to the sort of 20 levers that you describe in your paper around how to increase carbon storage or avoid greenhouse gas emissions. And this included things like forests and wetlands and grasslands and agricultural lands. Do you have a perspective on, you know, if you had to sort of bet on one, is there something that would rise to the top of your list? Yeah, well, I would first just caution by saying, like, this is not a buffet table where we sort of pick one item and then and then <laughs> so we have to do all these things in the same way just in the same way that we got every decade we need to cut in half global fossil fuel emissions right that's kind of this notion of this carbon law that uh, needs to proceed and likewise we need to make massive progress in every every one of these three major categories of natural climate solution actions right protect manage and restore so i guess i just want to start with that kind of sense of the importance of using all the major tools in our toolbox in parallel. We have to, so so to speak, like walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay. So there's that. But having said that, so I, I would also say that the protection side of the equation, which it is interesting because it's a category of action, which is really kind of the beginning of the conversation about natural climate solutions. And it was sort of back in the day when we all referred to the set of options within this acronym called RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. And then there was a RED plus. So it was like, and everything else, which really, in a sense, that really ends up adding up to natural climate solutions. You know, not just forests, other ecosystems, not just protection, but restoration and better management. So, but back, so interestingly, the conversation started with protection and now that sort of has seemed more out of vogue and everybody seems to be talking about restoration, right? So what I would say is that you know, protection will tend to be less expensive and it will tend to be more immediately impactful because basically it's easier to avoid damaging something. It's like preventative care, like for health, right? It's like it's usually a better idea to avoid a medical problem by ha- taking care of yourself better early on, not that you can avoid everything, of course, than it is to fix it after it happens, right? So what I would say is this. I would say I think we need to rekindle our, our original ex- sort of sense of the importance of protection 
So that's point number one. Second point I would make is that this improved management of working lands, when we add up the numbers, it's actually the largest of those three categories, improved management. It's the least sexiest, <laughs> right? It's kind of like, it's like this, oh, it's like this gray zone. And what does this mean? But but when you get down to the specific types of solutions within improving management of working lands, they actually are very exciting and they're very compelling and it's a space that hasn't, I think, gotten as much attention as the other two categories historically, but it's a huge opportunity. And like I said, it's where kind of the private sector, I think, can really make a particularly large difference. And then let me just say the restoration side of it, it has recently really captured the imagination, both for the corporate, you know, private sector and, and the government. So there's the bond challenge and governments have made a lot of pledges companies like to talk about planting trees and like the restoration of forests, it captures the imagination, you know, regreening the planet. That That is just a powerful image. And so I will just say, absolutely, it is a powerful image. And it is a moment in time where it's no longer just a nice idea. It is what we have to do. At the same time that I'm emphasizing protection and management and, and sort of for the reasons I just did, I would say every ounce of inspiration and energy we can get from the notion of, of regreening the planet and rewilding the planet, we should ride that inspiration because it's absolutely what we need to do. Awesome. I, and I, I love hearing a bit about how you've seen the conversations change as well, the, the sort of <laughs> protection being a little bit more out of vogue and the, the land management maybe not being the, the, the top of mind, but, but should be a, a bigger part of the conversation. I wonder if you have uh, like further thoughts on just why the conversation is changing or uh, if anything is really standing out in terms of what ideas within natural climate solutions are catching on uh, in the public imagination or in government or in, in finance uh, and, and what, what might be driving the, the evolution of the conversation as you've seen it. I, I think that it's a little bit like, what's that statement I've heard? mentioned, you know, you can trust them to to do the right thing after trying every alternative. You know, natural climate solutions, I think is kind of, it, it's, it's been a process of, I think in many ways, the public and private sector, like trying, like, oh my God, there's big excitement about, about, you know, technologies for removing carbon from the atmosphere. And there continues to be, and there should be, we need to develop those. There's a big excitement about all the things we need to do, and we're seeing major changes, right? Like the expansion of the solar industry, that's been incredibly exciting. But what, what's also happened is an awareness of how difficult it is to decarbonize different parts of industry and energy and to develop machines that like suck carbon out of the atmosphere as well. It's, guess what? There are prototypes for these things, but they're very expensive. They've got decades of development. And then you got to guess what? You got to store billions of tons of carbon bricks somewhere, you know? So, so there's all these kind of interesting challenges. And then, and so I think it's almost after exploring a lot of these other options that I think a lot of people realize like, oh my gosh, photosynthesis. This is a basically a free process, which is restorative to both for biodiversity and for water quality and for all the other things we care about. And guess what? It is the primary chemical reaction that controls the cycling of carbon in our atmosphere, even today, right? Not something like 95% of carbon flows are a function of natural systems. Now, they happen to be 
in balance, although slightly imbalanced actually in our favor. There's actually like absorbing more carbon than, than is being released from natural ecosystems. But but there's, I think, finally an awareness of actually exploring sort of all the, let's just say, artificial solutions to the problem, that there's actually, you know, an elephant in the room and it happens to be nature. Yeah, Bronson, it's it's great to hear you say that. I, one of the things that Kate, Ida, and I talk about often is how there's all this excitement around climate tech, but you could really think of nature as the original climate tech. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, Given that there's sort of a time value of acting on climate change, right, to avoid certain tipping points, et cetera, having a, a scalable, deployable solution that we can invest in today, that's one of the reasons why Ida and Kate and I are so excited about nature. But there's debates around some of the big questions around permanence, leakage, additionality. How do you actually know that you're getting real climate impact when you're investing in nature-based solutions? I'd love to hear your take on some of these big questions of how do you make sure that when you're investing in nature, you're doing so with the highest integrity and that we're actually driving real change that leads to additional climate impact. Yeah. Well, let me start with a little bit of a a conceptual, broader conceptual point, which is that I, I do think as part of that process that I was mentioning about, I think it's taken, taken the, both the private and public sector a couple decades to come to realize the, the magnitude of the opportunity with natural common solutions. Part of that is because you know nature is complicated. It's a it is an incredibly complex, and as you're saying, it's one of the most the original the original technology, but it actually is far more complicated than technologies, you know, ecosystems in our biosphere. These things are incredibly complex systems. So part of the challenge has just been that the people in the private sector, the people in the public sector, their career tracks didn't usually involve a lot of coursework in ecology, right? They didn't usually work, involve a lot of coursework in like reminding us of the basics of the carbon cycle that we learned in high school. And so I think as a result of that, there's actually just a fair amount of angst about like, wait a second, is permanence, like you said, permanence in particular, we, let, let's talk a little bit about that. And then there's this issue of leakage, which is displacement of it. If you make an action here, will it displace the problem somewhere else? So my point is, is that it's just a sort of a group of people from, from other disciplines grappling with a new discipline and not understanding it and having an angst about it. And my basic message would be this, a lot of the, most all of these basic issues are are actually cross all sectors permanence and leakage uh, and other concerns about basic concerns they're concerns that we have to grapple with in accounting for for climate benefits across all sectors and the more we understand about how ecosystems work i think that the less people should be fundamentally worried about these and more understand they're just a set of kind of technical fixes that will allow us to proceed in properly accounting for and relying on natural systems to deliver what we needed to. Just following up on what you just said, it would be great to hear on permanence and and leakage. How would you say that we should be thinking about those topics when it comes to nature-based solutions? Yes. So I would say that in the case of permanence, I think the best way to think about it is simply it's a problem that the insurance industry solved many decades ago. And this is how it's being solved in the current sort of carbon trading mechanisms is you have what's called a, a permanence buffer pool 
but it's basically just a little insurance program. So it says, okay, for every kind of climate benefit that you count for as part of a specific set of actions that are being financed, say, by the private sector, we need to sort of basically take out a small insurance policy. And so we'll allocate a small portion of every credit will be put in reserve and put into sort of a pool of sort of backup credits that aren't even transactable unless some credits that have been tra- transacted essentially are reversed but let's just say a massive forest fire right so what happens you have this this buffer pool that is that has been contributed to by efforts all over the world and then whenever you have a sort of a reversal uh so-called reversal of a stock that was kind of counted on then you kind of back that up with this insurance policy so that's just like taking an, you know insurance out on your house you pay a little into it so that if something really bad happens you need sort of more support from elsewhere on that policy comes to your rescue. Conceptually, what I want to flag is that what I think makes people nervous is just reading in the news every day about some massive forest fire or, you know, some natural disaster or hurricane or what have you, some natural disaster and being like, good grief, like ecosystems seem to be falling apart. Why should we rely on them to solve climate you know, to help us solve climate change. We know we can't, they're not the only solution, but we, as a big part of our, of our climate solution. And so that's, again, kind of a branding problem. You know, I'm not a journalist, but I imagine it would be a little bit less compelling than sort of covering a wildfire in Australia or California to talk about the incremental increase in um, growth of trees all over the planet due to carbon due due to CO2 fertilization. So carbon pollution, CO2, the primary greenhouse gas, is also plant food. As a function of cranking up the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is causing climate change, puts more plant food in, into the atmosphere and it helps plants grow. As a function of that, intact forests around the world have actually been growing faster than they used to. And that has more than offset the uptick we've seen in forest fires and other natural disasters. Now, we don't want to rely on that kind of free helping hand from nature because it's not it, it's just not going to alone sa- save the day for us. But it's just an example, a little bit of a misunderstanding of ecosystems and the scale. The bottom line is the scale of the disasters you read about in the newspaper is not nearly big enough to offset the much more stable storage and removal of carbon by ecosystems writ large. So on the topic of scale, how good would you say we are at measuring natural climate solutions, storage and removal of carbon today? And given the entrance of other private sector actors into this space and all these other recent developments, what level of scientific certainty do you think we need to have when measuring natural climate solutions? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and it's a mixed answer. So some forms of natural climate solutions are really well measured, and basically it's almost free at this point. So, for example, tracking deforestation used to be a considerable concern maybe a few decades ago, but now we have essentially a whole bunch of, of different satellites up in space that are providing, many of which are providing free data that is tracking the essentially forest cover. So you can go online right now. Um, Global Forest Watch is a good example and get access to essentially free 
global monitoring information that will track the extent of forests. And any national government can use that data. Oftentimes, national governments will try to create their own system, but that's more out of a, a sort of a sense of national sovereignty, more p- political reasons for that than it is technical reasons. So the bottom line is that for some types of natural problem solutions, um, such as avoiding deforestation, the majority of the technical and measurement challenges have been solved. And we can always improve that, and we should continue to improve that, but it's, it's not the rate-limiting factor. There are other types of natural problem solutions for which it is a rate-limiting factor. We really need to really focus on solving monitoring and, and measurement um, and verification problems in order to be able to unlock the actions. So a lot of soil carbon actions, of so whether it's changes in agricultural practices like no-till agriculture, the, the information, the ability to track the changes in, in, in soil carbon you know, needs investment. And it's, it's hard to measure soil carbon from, the, from space. It is easy to measure the presence of trees from space. You know, in in simple, simplest of terms, the things that you can see with your eye, you know, you can often see from space. But the things that are below ground <clears throat> that you can't kind of see with your eye, it's, it's harder to detect from space. So in really simple terms, those are some of the, the issues I see at play. I will say that in the, in the sort of protect, manage, and restore framework that we talked about, it's a lot of the management opportunities for which the technical solutions are more, let's just say, are, are more nuanced. It's not like, is there a forest or is there not a forest? It's how are you managing that forest? It's, you know, if there's not a forest, how are you managing that cropland or that grazing land? And what are the implications for, for the structure of that forest and for the structure of the soils? And so that's where the harder monitoring challenges come into play. But I, I get excited where there's a monitoring limitation because oftentimes what that means is if we can just find these technical solutions to that monitoring problem, oftentimes it can suddenly trigger a lot of action because sometimes those can be really cost-effective actions. It's just we need the monitoring tool. So the presence of a monitoring barrier to me is an opportunity. Great. And I want to follow up on this point about monitoring change over time. Also, your points around increase in wildfires or other disasters that intersect with natural ecosystems. In our reading, we've seen that some of the ecosystems are changing, right? Their ability to store carbon or their transitions from a sink to a source. So just curious to understand as the climate changes, what changes can we expect in nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions? Just curious to give give us a little look in the crystal ball, uh, if you will, of what would science say about how future warming will impact the sequestration potential of these natural systems. I'm thinking also like permafrost and other important, like tundra, other important ecosystems that are undergoing changes now. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the more existential questions. How do we, if nature is both a major solution, a major technology, but if nature, you know, to the extent that nature is vulnerable to climate change itself, how do we use a tool to solve a problem when the tool itself is vulnerable to that problem, right? I mean, it's it's kind of a a profound question. So what I would say is I do think that this harkens back to this kind of earlier in the conversation about the conversation about permanence and about about the branding problem that nature has, is that nature is a lot more resilient than we give her credit for. 
is sort of point number one. So, so we often think about a human scale, of course, because we're humans. So we think about a tree and we see trees fall and burn and, you know, we see floods come and, and, and wash away wetlands and we see things happen and we know that these ecosystems are vulnerable. What we don't observe as much and it's a little bit harder to um, conceptualize, but it's absolutely the case, is that ecosystems, these systems and the flows of carbon in the atmosphere are really, we need to think about them more at the scale of if you're like up in an airplane, looking down on the land. At that scale of whole landscapes and whole ecosystems, it is normal and there are disturbances, whether they're fire or hurricane or And ecosystems are always on some kind of cycle of recovering from a last disturbance. And at the landscape scale, there's this sort of dynamic equilibrium. And and at that scale, systems are way more resilient than we I think we realize. That's kind of putting our heads into the kind of landscape scale of that which ecosystems function that I think will help us to be a little less concerned about this sort of question of the permanence of ecosystems. Having said that, we also need to understand that there are some ecosystems that are close to transitions between essentially different types of ecosystems. You know, Mediterranean forest ecosystems like in Northern California and in Australia, those are both Mediterranean kind of forest systems. They're actually systems that are right at the edge between a forest and basically a grassland of some kind. So there are some systems for which increasingly sort of sophisticated climate modeling can help us identify, are there some systems where where we are not well advised to invest a lot of our energy in climate mitigation, in restoring and expanding those systems as a way of storing carbon? Instead, we should be thinking about those systems perhaps with a priority on adaptation, right? It's sort of the, the direct human impacts of fire, these kinds of things. So what I'm saying is that there is an element of triage that we need to be thinking about. And there are some types of systems that we should be thinking about more in terms of adaptation than in mitigation. Having said that, the, the vast majority of ecosystems are not going to be in that category. The vast majority of the ecosystems are going to be in the category of systems that we can restore and we should think about as a permanent form of storage at the scale of large landscapes that I've mentioned. And with this sort of insurance policy kind of system I talked about, which is how you deal with some smaller scale disturbances. I think the final point I will make is really a little bit of the flip side of the coin, which is a bit of maybe the shock and awe side of the story, is nature is very resilient. Nature is, contrary to what we may perceive, nature is actually doing more for us, has actually already helping us out with climate change without us even knowing it by virtue of removing more carbon than we thought these systems were actually as a response to climate change. So there's all that. But here's the thing. There are fundamental thresholds in ecosystems around the world. Even despite what I said about, I don't think most ecosystems we should be fundamentally worried about. If we push them so far, too far, they can cross thresholds across many systems. If we reach that point, consider that four to five times more carbon is stored in ecosystems than is stored in the atmosphere right now. That means that if we were to actually cross those thresholds, 
our goose would be cooked. Like we cannot, we cannot go down that road. Like we, there is no option. There is no option of deciding to essentially triage uh, and saying, Hey, let's just not focus on natural climate solutions because it's too risky. If we actually believe that, then the, the game is over because the, the, the majority of carbon in our biosphere is stored in those ecosystems. And if they, they are released to the atmosphere, it's all over. So I don't want to leave <laughs> on an overly dramatic or pessimistic note. But so let me just say this. We must be optimistic. We must be optimistic about the resilience of nature, not only because there's lots of evidence that nature is resilient, but because we cannot approach those sort of macro thresholds at which point ecosystems would kind of en masse release um, their carbon. Amazing. I, I love the optimism and, and, and certainly share it. It strikes me that we're talking about such big things, such big changes, right? Preventing entire ecosystems from crossing these existential thresholds, which, which is important and, and, and very real. But, you know, doing so obviously requires funding, and yet only such a tiny fraction of climate finance, 2% by some estimates, is actually going towards natural climate solutions today. I'd love to hear in, in your perspective what you think the barriers are. I think there are a variety of barriers, and we, we've already talked about some of them. We've talked about the branding problem for nature, and we've talked about some of the specific conceptual misunderstandings that make people more nervous, I would say, about investing in nature. There's also just a logistical kind of track record problem, which is that because this is a space that for you know, many decades has been the space of charitable contributions on the margins of society, frankly, with sort of the, let's just say, the crumbs of the financial system <laughs> have kind of trickled into conservation and the conservation kind of world have used what are, you know, relatively speaking, very small amounts of funding to do what we do. As a result of that, you don't have kind of infrastructure of information. You don't have like the Bloomberg kind of investment information database on NCS projects, but we need that, right? So what we need to do is we do need to bring, let's just say, the discipline of the private sector into this space to help us have a basically a, a more structured and, and disciplined track record. So I think that so what I'm really excited about and what I think is we're just starting to see right now is the building of a track record of performance of projects so that the investor community has a much better understanding of essentially like return on investment for a certain type of investment in the NCS space. So that kind of information is pretty limited right now. And we need to develop that that body of knowledge. That's great. And I think that's, uh, speaking of sort of the things that need to be done, it's a great segue into, for all of our listeners who are sort of wondering about how to pursue natural climate solutions or to get involved, how are listeners who are interested in leveraging the toolkit of NCS do so? What would you suggest to those people? Well... I would say the number one way in which we as individuals kind of directly interact with natural climate solutions is when we sit down to have a meal. And, you know, the number one kind of global land use is agricultural and grazing lands around the world. And so I myself, am not a vegetarian, but 
merely by doing by as a function of having done the the research that I have done in the past decade, I reached a point where I realized, wow, I, I got to start to take this personally because I just became increasingly aware of essentially the sheer inefficiency of a lot of, of food production systems, particularly livestock. So uh, something like 70% of, of our global agricultural lands are used for the production of livestock, which provide about 5% of our food. So on the one hand, it's a little bit horrifying about that, the sort of inefficiency of land use. On the other hand, it's a huge opportunity. So, you know, we are what we eat. It's not in my nature to sort of be preachy about this, but I will say that just on a personal level, I've come to realize the importance of my own of my own diet. The other thing I would say is there are local opportunities in many places to actually directly engage in land restoration. And it's like a great way to sort of have productive recreation is to engage farmers and sort of forest owners or even, you know, look into being one yourself if if you can figure out how to how to restore, you know, locally. Who do you think is doing some of the most exciting work to scale natural climate solutions today? What should we be looking at or paying attention to? Am I allowed to plug uh, Conservation International? So, I mean, I am at Conservation International right now because I think Conservation International is one of the most exciting um, places to be in the center of the action on natural climate solutions. And, you know, if you go to the, our website, you'll, the first thing you'll see on that website is information about natural climate solutions and what we're doing on it. I, that's obviously a little bit of a uh, self-serving statement, but it's what I believe. But there are a whole bunch of organizations. The exciting thing is that there are lots of, you know, good news is there are lots of different organizations that you can get involved with that are, that really are leaning in on natural climate solutions these days. The Nature Conservancy, Environmental Defense Fund, World Wildlife Fund, World Resources Institute, Woodwell Climate Research Center, Potsdam Institute for Climate. And I certainly would encourage anybody to sort of find, you know, the organization that that, that matches their interests and, and get involved. All right, Bronson, this has been fascinating. Thanks for giving us and our listeners all this insight into the latest on natural climate solutions science and how to think about nature relative to other climate solutions. This is a great branding episode, I think, for nature. <laughs> and uh, to close out, we typically do a lightning round, which is our rapid fire round of questions at the end of each episode. So are you ready? All right, I'm ready. All right, here we go. So favorite carbon sink. Mangroves. I'm not a mangrove scientist, but mangroves are one of like the one of the superheroes of natural climate solutions. Amazing. Favorite book you read this year? A book called The River by Peter Heller. I have to confess, I'm a little bit into dystopian adventure stories, but this one is about these guys who go go camping in the boreal. I think it's in in Canada, and witness. A massive forest fire there, and and but survive uh, uh, at least some of them. Wow, well that feels like a very a climate appropriate story. <laughs> yes. Um, at favorite COVID acti- quarantine activity. Oh gosh, this is going to be a little frumpy because I'm a middle aged guy, but hiking in the forest with my three girls and my wife. You know, in the silver lining category of COVID, it's you know, getting outside and just enjoying the great outdoors locally with my family. Awesome. Getting outside is definitely one of my favorite things too. 
what what keeps you up at night? You know, I'm not a big worrier, so I actually, I guess I'm lucky. Like, I don't tend to like worry about profound things. If I'm worrying at night, it's usually about really silly little things. But I have to admit that I did went through a phase about a couple of years ago where I did actually start worrying about um, at night. You, you know, keeping me up at night about um, like like essentially, okay, I'm my my day job is to try to solve climate change, but like what if we don't succeed? So I, I became a little bit of a prepper. I call it a minor league prepper. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's like prepping for, you know, societal collapse or something. And so, so I, I spent a little energy thinking about it and, and doing a little bit about it, but then I, I stopped worrying about it. But basically what I would put a plug in is for, so what did we do? So we managed to purchase a little piece of forest and we're building a tiny house on it, you know, a little solar powered, you know, off the grid. And it's, so I think, I, I guess I would put in a plug for like being an eco prepper. Um, you know, what can you do to sort of prepare for the worst while solving and, and trying to avoid that? Eco prepper sounds like a great name for a blog or something, Bronson. You should <laughs> document your, your journeys as an eco prepper. <laughs> I'm sure there'd be others who want to learn and, and follow along. And then what are you looking forward to in 2021 on an optimistic note? Oh my gosh. The repeat answer would be going to our tiny house in West Virginia um, and hiking in the forest with <laughs> my girls. But let me give you a more conceptual thing. One of the things I am so excited about, um, aside from being excited about ho hopefully getting a, a vaccination to COVID, is the convergence of the social justice movement and the natural climate solutions movement and the environmental movement, the convergence of those two movements, which is in retrospect, like so obvious, right? It is so obvious that it is essentially the, the less privileged who are, who are experiencing the worst impacts of climate change and who would benefit the most from restoring you know, our ecosystems, because they're the, you know, a lot of the, the least privileged folks around the world are the ones who depend upon, you know, on, on clean water flowing in streams, who depend upon clean air uh, the most, don't have options for doing, you know, all kinds of crazy, you know, filtration mechanisms and such. And so the coming together of the social justice movement and the environmental movement is what I am most excited about. That's great. And yeah, we need to do an episode on that too. It's one of the things that uh, for Kate Eden and I really get us excited about, about nature-based solutions and the meaning that it has for people, particularly vulnerable people. So we'll be excited to follow how that develops. But thank you, Bronson, so much for joining us today. My honor and my pleasure. Um, thanks so much for the chance to talk to you. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com. To see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes, let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.